Hey there. The title of this episode is 50 Careers in 50 Minutes, but we were so eager to tell you about all of them that we managed to do it in 48. Which means we have a little bit of time to kill before the episode begins. I could tell you about theories of the formation of the moon, or I could toss out a dust fact, but you'll hear plenty from us in just a bit. You know who you'll also hear from? Our good friend Sir David Attenborough. So, Sir David, could you tell us in 30 seconds how you think the moon might have formed? No, not really. But also, I think that that's a, um, I mean, it's an interesting theoretical question, but it's a theoretical question. Why would I want to go and live on the moon? All right, I didn't say live on the moon. I've got this world of badgers and thrushes and jellyfish and corals. Why would I want to go and live in the moon? Because there's nothing else there except dust. Will happens to like dust, but fair enough. You really don't see a value to astronomy? I clearly remember the first time I saw Earthrise. Our brilliant blue planet suspended in cold, colorless space. I suddenly realized how isolated and lonely we are here on Earth. But despite the vast distance that made the photograph possible, we had not lost our connection with the natural world. We had rediscovered it. We saw for the first time our one home together in the cosmos. If the greatest legacy of the first flight to the moon was the discovery of Earth, then our responsibility to that legacy is to protect our oasis among the stars, the one home to all known life. Let's just start the episode. (sighs) Okay. Every day, undergraduate and graduate students in astronomy enter the job market. Then we sit down and discuss the careers they pursue and the skills they use, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Dr. Melina Rice, as of the day that this... As of the day that this podcast is released, I will be a PhD. Wow. <laughs> uh, from Yale University. Incredible. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study explosive transients and their host galaxies. Somebody else with a little bit of a change in title. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 50, 50 Careers in 50 Minutes. And since this is a big, fun, round number for those of us who are living it up in the base 10 numeral system. And really, who isn't? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We wanted to do something extra special today. So we're going to talk about 50 different careers that you can pursue with either a physics or an astronomy degree. That's right. We are not going over just one or just two, but a whole 50 careers. And we're going to do it in just 50 minutes. No pressure at all. I'm also going to wrap every single one of them Pokemon rap style. Professor Diglett Nidoron Consultant. (laughs) Some of those were careers, Alex. (laughs) 
I would be a data ran. <laughs> I'm a diglet for sure. <laughs> that's the dream. <laughs> and that's also going to be our new outro for episodes 51 through 100. <laughs> you're going to be happy that you're leaving, aren't you? <laughs> you don't want to have to cut that. <laughs> Over the past year, I've personally spent a lot of time exploring many different career paths that I could pursue, and I've often heard people talking about the academic pathway as the default or the primary pathway, but really it's the other way around these days. More PhDs pursue non-academic careers instead of academic ones. And when you consider bachelor's and master's degrees, actually that number goes up even more. Over my time in astronomy, I've met a lot of people who ended up going into a huge range of different fields, and it's so inspirational to see all of these stories about people choosing different paths. It reminds me there's no one correct path. Yeah, because my undergraduate degree is in computational modeling and data analytics, my friends from undergrad are now scattered all throughout industry and academia, and nearly all of them have entered professions where they find their work both interesting and personally fulfilling. Wonderful. Right. Being several years out of undergrad, it's been pretty incredible seeing the wide range of paths that my friends have gone into. So I'm excited to share some of those thoughts here. We've talked about non-traditional paths a bit on the show in the past. So today we wanted to actually go through a non-exhaustive list of both these sort of more traditional paths and the non-traditional possibilities. And often the traditional ones, we just consider traditional because, you know, the people who are training us are in certain careers. They are aware of certain career paths. That is the ones that they have followed. And therefore they seem pretty traditional to us because that's just what we're exposed to. But there's actually a huge range of possibilities of what you can do. Also, before we get started, we wanted to give a big thanks to our friends over at Astrobytes for helping us yes. compile this list of 50 careers. Woo. But Will and Melina, 50 careers in 50 minutes doesn't give us a whole lot of time for each one. Yeah, and by my count, we're already at four and a half minutes. We got to hurry up. Whew. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, go, go, go. Okay, okay. So we've created a form. <laughs> For you as the listener to tell us which careers you want to hear more about. And after you're done listening to this episode, head to astrosoundbites.com, fill out this form, and in a future episode, we'll have interviews with real people who are currently engaged in those careers. We also now have some sweet Astro Soundbites swag, and we'll send an Astro Soundbites sticker to everybody who fills out the survey. Ooh, could I get a sticker? I still don't have yes, one. Yes, you can have one sticker. We'll think about it. <laughs> but only if you fill out the only survey. Only if I fill out the survey. <laughs> <laughs> And if you are currently in one of those 50 careers and want to talk about it on the show, then we would also love it if you'd fill out the form and let us know. Or even a different career. Right. Yeah, we're super open to just seeing, you know, what are the possibilities out there? What are the ones that we haven't even thought of? Just fill out the form. Just fill it out. (laughs) (laughs) We've divided these 50 careers into six categories, and we'd like to put a predominantly in front of each of these categories since there's kind of a lot of overlap you can kind of dabble in multiple things if you'd like and so it's hard to really say you know these are many separate categories but for the sake of you know having this full list for you we wanted to just list out a bunch of career titles which may or may not have some similarities uh, in certain cases and so the key categories that we came up with are research teaching slash education outreach policy psycom Tech, private sector, defense, aerospace industry, and potpourri. Now, two caveats here. 
One is that we all recognize that it is an enormous privilege to be able to study something that we're all passionate about. Job security and compensation can and should be factors that you weigh when charting your career path. And it's completely fine if those are your primary considerations and you end up exploring your passions in other facets of your life. Second caveat, just because Milana used the word potpourri doesn't mean that any of us actually know how to spell it. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I'm not even sure I pronounced it right. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, I agree with you, but I will say job security, compensation, and passion can all be found together. It might not be obvious, but I think it can be done. In addition, we've loosely categorized these jobs where you're applying specific domain knowledge, that is astronomy training. And so in research, education, and outreach, policy, SCICOM, those tend to be where actual astronomy training is more useful. And then some of the other careers, the other three categories might not actually use the astronomy training tech in the private sector, defense, aerospace industry, and potpourri. In these cases, you're going to be using skills you learned from your astronomy training, but not maybe the actual astronomy knowledge itself. Though we'll see, some of them actually do use the knowledge. And in any case, we really want to emphasize that the skill set that you obtain with an astronomy or physics degree is incredibly broad and very applicable beyond just subject matter expertise. In addition to direct research skills, we also, during the course of our degrees, learn some subset of the following. So we learn about teaching, public speaking, writing, critical thinking, problem solving, study skills, data analysis, programming, and much more. You have a lot of skills that are valuable to employers, but sometimes translating those skills to the employers is a really hard thing to do. It's not clear The skills that we have in academia translate directly to the industry world, but often they do. And I'm going to put some resources in the show notes that really helped me identify skills that I have and how I might translate those into different employers when I finally get on the job market. That's probably enough caveats before we even begin the episode. So we're at nine minutes. (laughs) With all that in mind, Malena, can you tell us a few ways that physicists put their oh-so-transferable skills to work? Well, I am going to start off by talking about the predominantly research track. That's mostly just because it's at top of mind for me because I just went through this academic job market circuit this fall. Again, I'd like to emphasize that this is just one of many different incredible career paths that you can take. I guess there's, there's a list of eight potential careers within this category that I'm going to list out that you can do with a physics or an astronomy degree. So a few jobs that you can have that are predominantly research-based are, one, a professor. So this includes both the predominantly research-based, and you could also be a professor that does more of a focus on teaching, depending on where you are. There are also soft money researchers. These include staff scientists, research faculty at universities, as well as staff scientists at places like uh, NASA or potentially, you know, Space Telescope Science Institute and other places around the world. Those are just a couple that are in the U.S., Melina, can you explain what soft money means? Yeah, soft money is based on external grants and contracts. So that means that in this job, you're continually proposing different projects and you're obtaining money for those specific projects of interest. And by contrast, there are also hard money jobs. So for example, professorships, where the university or the organization where you work is directly paying you. And so you're not continually proposing for the university to give you your salary. So it's just two different ways of getting money. In practice, you might end up doing a lot of the same type of research. Okay. And on with the count we go. 
So we also have three instrumentalists, so someone who builds instruments like spectrographs, etc. You could have four project managers and five project scientists. So project managers are more focused on team management, whereas project scientists are often kind of getting their hands dipped into the science itself. There are also six research analysts at institutions or people who are developing software for research, seven NASA civil servants, and eight telescope operators or technicians. So all of these are ways that you can directly conduct or support research in your career. Some are based at universities, or like professorships, or soft money, sometimes project managers or project scientists. Others might be, for example, at national labs, NASA centers, or at the headquarters of certain telescopes. So you could be a technician specifically working at Keck Observatory in Hawaii, for example. And there's a lot of overlap in some of these jobs, but in some way you're directly actually contributing to research, and that's kind of the goal of your job. Can you explain what a civil servant is at NASA versus other NASA positions? So civil servants are working as part of the public sector and hard money jobs. So a NASA civil servant would be paid directly by NASA, and they're primarily doing just research. So if you're a civil servant working as a scientist at NASA, you're usually not going to be teaching. You might be able to advise. So I know some people at Goddard, uh, which is very close to some nearby universities, like the University of Maryland, do actually advise students, but it's not generally a requirement of your job. And you might also be a PI and oversee a large group. Right. Yes. There's tons of job security associated with that position, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very nice, it's kind of like tenure, but not in Mm, an academic institution. That's a great way to think about it. All right, time check. We're at 12 minutes. I think it's time to move on (laughs) to the next set. All right. It is indeed. Another relevant set of careers that you might consider, and one where you can regularly think about and talk about astronomy, but the focus is less on the research itself, is in teaching and education, section number two. All right, so you can become number nine, a professor at a regional university, a community college, a small liberal arts Mm. college, any of these professorships where the focus is traditionally more on teaching than on the research itself. Not to say you can't do research in those positions, but it's something to keep in mind. And it's also worth noting that it's not uncommon to transition from a university where you're mostly teaching to one where you're mostly doing research, or vice versa, but you have to be disciplined to continue building up a record in the area that you want to transition into. Right. Another thing to consider is some of these universities or colleges won't have a lot of graduate students, so it's mostly undergrads doing the research there. That's a really good point. Yeah, definitely. Number 10, you could be a lecturer or an adjunct faculty. So I should caution, the term lecturer can mean something completely different based on the country that you're in. Mm. In Commonwealth countries like the UK, a lecturer is often the term used for the direct equivalent for an assistant professor in the US, and a senior lecturer is the equivalent of an associate professor. In the US, we take it to mean any non-tenure-track faculty member without formal research obligations. So this could be a full-time position, in which case you're typically called a lecturer, or part-time, in which case you're called adjunct. Adjunct offers more flexibility, but less security because it's part-time. And you should be careful here. In addition, adjunct faculty typically get paid less than full-time faculty and don't get many employee benefits because they're only part-time. And the American Association of University Professors has determined that 73% of university teaching positions are now non-tenure track. I thought that was really interesting. Wow, that's a lot. It's the majority. We're at 14 minutes. 
One other interesting thing about adjuncts, we often think about them as sort of younger people who are trying to make a go of it and teaching a lot before they do. It can also be people who have other careers and then kind of as a side hustle, they get an adjunct position and it, the pay is sort of not that relevant. It's more of like a fun way of broadening your horizons and, you know, sharing your knowledge with the world. So that's another way to come back to teaching, having gone into a different career. That's a great point. Number 11, you could become a high school or a middle school teacher. My high school science teacher, Mr. Ryder, used to teach at the university level, and he's the main reason that I went into research. Shout out to Mr. Ryder if you're listening. There's a there's a 0% chance that he's listening. Number 12, <laughs> university teaching centers. Many schools have centers for teaching and learning, things like this, where staff advise on, for example, TAing a class or mentoring undergraduates in research that you can be appointed to. I work at one of these part-time. They're good. Nice. nice. The people are super welcoming. <laughs> Yourself included. <laughs> Number 13. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Tutoring or career <laughs> development advising. If you're getting an undergraduate degree in physics or astronomy, I know you've been getting the numerate emails. E-tutoring is a huge market right now, <laughs> especially during the pandemic, and it's something that you can do full time. Absolutely. Number 14. Become an advisor to a public or a private education board or company. This allows you to apply domain knowledge to improve student achievement across many different districts. So for example, you can become a science advisor to a set of science standards, such as the Next Generation Science Standards. There were a lot of scientists that advised on that that currently now are being used to develop curricula across the country. Number 15, you could become a freelance curriculum developer. So these are people hired at any level, K through 12 or university level, to ensure state and local standards are met, such as the Next Generation Science Standards. And this typically involves working with multiple schools simultaneously. You're freelancing, so you're not directly connected to any one school. Now, notice here how many roles there are. I just mentioned that require knowledge of effective teaching and learning styles, but where you're not actually doing the teaching yourself. If that's something that interests you, there are tons of different careers that you can do in this domain. Cool. Amazing. Huge range of possibilities. So the next category we have is outreach, policy, and communication. And this has rapidly expanded in recent years. And these jobs often use domain-specific knowledge, that is your astronomy or physics knowledge, but more importantly, they use communication skills, especially the skill of translating complex scientific ideas into more digestible ones. Sound familiar, anybody? <laughs> Always want to get better at that. Who? What? <laughs> <laughs> Putting SciComm to practice. So <laughs> let's start with the SciComm jobs. 16, you could be a salaried science journalist or a freelance science writer. Now, these are similar, except for the fact that if you're salaried, you're tied down to one periodical, one newspaper, magazine, or otherwise. If you're freelance, you write what you want, and you have to then pitch it to the periodicals. And in episode 43, Kerry explained how that process goes. Mm -hmm. So you get more freedom as a freelance, but a lot less security. 17. You could be an institutional science writer or a communications manager. So these are salaried jobs, but instead of working for a periodical producing content, you work for an institution, helping that institution sort of convey its information outward. 18. Specifically, the AAS has administrative positions and media. These are kind of like these institutional positions. What is the AAS? The American Astronomical Society is the largest society of astronomers in America. Nice. <laughs> mm, good to know. And they do a ton of media work, 
In fact, to bring up Carrie again, she is now the AAS communications specialist and co-editor of Nova, which is the AAS publication of, you know, recent news in astronomy. And so you could work in a number of these kinds of positions. 19, university or institution outreach and diversity offices. Most universities have full-time personnel in an office. For example, BU calls it the Office of STEM Outreach and Diversity. And in fact, they funded us for a year. Thank you, BU Office of STEM Outreach and Diversity. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And their goal is to produce funding for things that needed help organize events and initiatives. At that office, they also could get involved in departmental initiatives, make sure there are resources, and help the university communicate the outreach to the world. Also, every university has a press office, and the specific job of the press office is to help the researchers communicate major findings to the press and the public. So there's sort of a go-between at the university level, which owns most of the research products you should be aware of. 20. Journal editor. So when we submit manuscripts to a journal, there are editors responsible for managing that process, and they're usually not experts in the specific subject which means by translation, you could serve in this position for many different science magazines without being an expert in that specific science, but you probably are required to have a strong journalistic background. Moving on, let's get into some of the more outreach positions. So 21, outreach coordinator for NASA, for observatories, or for other institutions. NASA has the Office of STEM Engagement, and each NASA center has its own education and outreach office. They organize public talks, they have events at local schools, diversity initiatives like funding, and they also manage the summer internship programs at the NASA centers. And then there are things at other institutions that are not NASA that have similar types of offices. 22. Data Visualization Expert. Again, bringing up NASA, they have the Scientific Visualization Studio, and I met Uh, with the lead of the NASA Scientific Visualization Studio, and he explained some of the fascinating stuff they get to do, including lots of sonifications and visualizations, and they get to work with all the cool data. NASA makes a great discovery. They get to share it with the world in the coolest possible way. So not doing research, but really involved in some of the latest research. 23, Planetarium Director or Museum Curator. There are a number of different roles. It depends on the institution. If it's a smaller institution, you'll wear a lot of hats, but if it's a big one, you might have a specific role. So you could do anything from running museum events to actually designing exhibits, which Alex knows a thing or two about. I do, but don't ask me about it. We don't have time. (laughs) (laughs) 24, programmer for planetarium software. So this is actually a whole different job. And it does require a little bit of specific training, but similar to visualization, actually building a planetarium show is something that you can do. And again, you get to convey the research and the latest happenings in astronomy to the most diverse of audiences. And so the last chunk of this sixth of our jobs is the more policy side of things. So there's NASA administration. These are not positions you typically get out of the gate. But if you aspire to lead NASA and determine where things are going in the long run, certainly it's something you can aspire for. Word 25. Take a deep breath. Halfway through. (sighs) Quick water break. (laughs) Quick water break. Shake it out. (laughs) Getting dry. I'm going to cut that. 26. Space law. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Someone must do space law. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, this is a hot take. My personal opinion is the 21st century geopolitically is going to be dominated by hegemony in space. And this is going to happen both at the national level and at the subnational level in terms of corporations getting an increasing share over space transfer and space technology. There's going to be a lot of law that is developed nationally and internationally to deal with this. In fact, a lot already exists. So law firms are going to need science consultants to help manage this. And if you actually have a physics or astronomy background and go to law school, there are all sorts of cool things you might be able to do with that. I know more schooling sounds crazy, but <laughs> if that's what appeals to you, go for it. I couldn't imagine going back to school. I don't know why you would. <laughs> 27, science advisor. So you might be an advisor to a legislator or a government agency. And so this is really going to lean heavily on that skill of translating complex to simple because usually legislators are not elected because they're experts in science. They're experts in communicating to people and leading people. And it's your job to tell them why they should support something and how it makes sense. 28. This is a, maybe a government liaison at a local or regional level. So you could be more involved. You could be more heavily involved in a lot of levels of government the lower it is. For instance, if you're on the local school board, you might be the only person who's going to represent a science background on that school board. It could have a large sway in how the school runs things. 29, policy researcher. So these tend to be at non-government institutes. You might be involved in directing science policy for the next X years for certain institutions and writing white papers and helping to lobby Congress on what should be done. Whew. Whew. All right. 29 done. Melina, what do you got for us? All right. So, so far, the first three categories we've talked about have focused on career options that directly use astronomy in some way. But we also want to talk about some other career paths where you're directly using your skills, but you may or may not regularly mm -hmm. actually be thinking about astronomy on the job. So I want to start off by describing a few different private sector careers that are related to tech. We're only going to have a few categories here because they're kind of like catch-all terms. There are quite a few types of jobs that would actually fall into each of these categories. Um, so these include 30, data science and analytics. So this is a big one. A lot of people who leave astronomy PhD programs often go into data science because our skills are so directly applicable. This could include, for example, Healthcare has a huge amount of data that, you know, with COVID and everything, you know, somebody has to be making these New York Times visualizations, for example. So there is a lot of data that's out there for, you know, healthcare, in addition to finance, tech, uh, just a lot that you can do. You could be the person who works for Netflix or Spotify to develop user recommendations. There's just tons of data that all kinds of companies are collecting. And you can, you can be the one who figures out what to do with it to help society, hopefully. 30, 31 is hardware engineering. Do you like to build things? Is your research about maybe building instruments or did you take lab classes that you really enjoyed? You could just build things for the rest of your life. You could build satellites, you could build phones, you could build TVs. There's a ton of stuff that you can do with that. Do you hate building things? Are you terrible? Does it always break? Like for me, you could be a software engineer. You don't have to build anything. You could just write code. I thought number 32 was some career where you tear things down. No. Destroy things. <laughs> wrecking ball. Yeah, Not the, the wrecking ball. There's one person that's the wrecking ball. Not that code can't also break, but different, different kind of breaking. <laughs> so you could also write code to build phones, TVs, etc. if you don't want to actually build them physically. <laughs> one, one thing I want to say about software engineering, 
a lot of the careers we've talked about use programming skills in the pursuit of other things. Mm -hmm. Software engineering is programming skills in the pursuit of programming. It generally requires a little more devotion to the art of programming than I personally enjoy. The science of programming, computer science, right? <laughs> art and a science, like astronomy. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. It's just programming for programming's sake. So just think of the major tech companies. You're not going to be doing the analysis of user recommendations. You might be building actual tools for how it's implemented with the user. Right. So like I have some friends who are software engineers at Apple and they build all of the apps on mm -hmm. the phones and they build like the, you know how when you swipe things, sometimes they have like a nice transition. They build that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Or thinking about data types to store large data sets more effectively, database management. All of this is stuff that you might have gained exposure to in an undergraduate degree in physics or astronomy. Right. True. All right. 33. <laughs> Statistician. So this is pretty related to data science and analytics, uh, but the goal here is specifically focused on being an expert at statistics. And so you could do this in a lot of different ways. So again, pretty broad category, but statistics is just a hugely applicable skill today. Totally. And 34, last in this category, is computational and modeling work in non-astronomy fields. So you actually can apply your skills to lots of different fields. You don't have to specifically do astronomy. You could do, for example, computational biology modeling to study blood flow, or you could study climate change with your computational modeling skills. So there's a lot that you can do that isn't specifically astronomy, but that is also kind of putting your tech skills into practice. Yeah, I have a friend who was a graduate student at the University of Illinois in astronomy who transitioned into a graduate program in oceanography and went from studying how turbulence affects stars to how turbulence affects the ocean. Cool. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of flexibility in what you can do with the same skill set. And again, a lot of what we learn in a physics or astronomy program is critical thinking and problem-solving skills and also programming. And so a lot of that kind of goes directly into each of these tech-related jobs that have been mentioned here. Another thing worth mentioning is these tend to be some of the highest paying jobs that we have on this list. Right. And that's probably why a lot of people go into them. <laughs> but that, that also means on the flip side, these industries are growing really fast. Right. So there are more careers here than, for instance, in academia. Mm-hmm. Speaking of extremely high-paying jobs, Will, don't you have next the defense and aerospace industries? <laughs> I do. <laughs> so yes, the defense and aerospace industries is next. And our astronomy knowledge actually is somewhat applicable to these industries. Not directly, but definitely can be. But our training in research, problem-solving, and data analysis are really the primary skills that they're looking for here. So 35 classified defense work. So this can be government or contractor. If it's the government, you might work for the Department of Defense. You could be as a civilian or as a member of the military working for the Department of Defense. In fact, there are, I know, enlisted people who serve in an engineering capacity. You could work at a federally funded research and development center. So for example, the Naval Research Lab or Lincoln Lab out here in Boston, those are just two of the many, many FFRDCs that exist. These tend to have more of an academic environment than you would find at a lot of other similar institutions. So these receive grants from the government, but are not quite 
government agencies and they're not quite corporations. They're somewhere in between. You could also do classified defense work at defense contractors. So we're still under 35 here, just to be clear. There are just a bunch of places you could do this. The defense contractors, for example, Northrop Grumman, Ball Aerospace, Boeing, so on and so forth. These are really big corporations. They're going to pay better. They're going to have more jobs, but they're going to be less academic, less research focused, more engineering focused. And then the last thing in this sort of classified world is intelligence departments. So this is even more classified. We don't even know what they do. Yeah, the intelligence departments are really interesting because a lot of what they do is <laughs> And then not to mention. <laughs> and people just pay the money for that. 36. Manufacturing and repair. This is a vague category. And I would say that this is sort of the more engineering lab bench, like Melina said, kind of the hardware stuff, but in the defense world and the aerospace world. So if you want to be more building stuff with your hands, doing the lab bench work, you may want to work for a contractor or a subcontractor that has those specific hard lab bench engineering roles. 37, public sector aerospace civilian work. So you could actually do this at agencies like NASA, but in this case, we're going to be talking about non-NASA since we put NASA in a different category. Think about NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They do a ton of work with climatology and meteorology, so they would actually be interested in some of our expertise, and you could work for the government in that agency as a civilian not doing classified work. So there's bio in that space, there's climate, there's agriculture also importantly, and there's also some civilian space technology. So this could be at the FFRDCs, you can actually do civilian work. It's not a lot of what they do because they're federally funded. They do a lot of the classified, you know, secret government stuff. But there are some things, for example, building CubeSats to study weather patterns that I happen to know about that is done by civilian agencies. So you don't have to do classified work, defense work, if that bothers you to be involved in the government in this way. And then the last one in this category, 38, is what we're calling new space. This is kind of a term people use for aerospace startups. And these vary a lot. So they can be software companies or they can be CubeSat manufacturers. They're small, so it's hard to put them into one category. But if you like the idea of working for a startup and you want to do spacey stuff, this really could be a good fit for you. We are cresting 31 to 32 minutes here, so... So maybe it's time for our last section. Our last section is potpourri. Don't ask us how to spell it. <laughs> oh, and I have the perfect space sound for this section. So that's how we're going to kick it off. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm going to play today's Astro Space Sound of the 50th Astro Sound Bites episode anniversary. Perfect. So going to play it and then I'll ask you to guess what it is. You might actually be able to guess this one. We'll see. The abundance of krill attracts other visitors to the peninsula in the summer. Antarctic minke whales. Their pointed heads and short dorsal fins give them speed and endurance. And they need both. <laughs> All right. What do you think it is? 
Yeah, I, I think I know this one. Uh, that sounds like uh, Sir David Attenborough. Yes. I, I couldn't tell if the heavy sigh in there was the whale or David Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> so when we first came up with this list, I put David Attenborough as a potpourri option for a job. And it was erased. <laughs> because he's old and probably going to no, die soon? I think wow. you can, no. No. <laughs> I mean, it's true. He's like 95. It's impressive. He's, just He's like, still what, what do you even call that career? He's just David Attenborough. It's a Dalai Lama type situation, right? Where like when when David Attenborough dies, he's reincarnated as somebody and they go looking around for the new David Attenborough. Yes. So this is David Attenborough talking about whales. <laughs> and you too could be, this is sort of related to SciComm, like realistically speaking, but actually there are very successful science communicators who actually get their messages across in various ways. David Attenborough has done wonders for the SciComm world with his voice. And so that could also be you. If you have a wonderful David Attenborough type voice that is great for science communication, consider applying for Astro Soundbites. I wonder how hard that job's got to be. What do you think, Sir David? The job of a narrator for natural history films is, is a great, is, is a bit of a dottle, a bit of a, a piece of cake. How's that? <laughs> it's, it's really pretty easy because the animals are so fantastic. Is that number 39? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so I guess number 39 is being David Attenborough. That's one job option. Let's talk about some others in potpourri. <laughs> Number 40, you can be a quantitative analyst at a financial firm. This is essentially looking for patterns in large data sets and using them to build predictive models. This is something you do all the time in astrophysics. I want to, I want to say something about that. The firms really do love hiring people with physics, astronomy, and math backgrounds because they've realized it's much easier to teach the finance to people who don't know it than to teach quantitative thinking to people who don't know it. So they actually value you and are looking for you. It's not a crazy jump. Really good point. Number 41, you could work for a consultant firm. You're essentially applying the scientific method. So you come up with a question, you design a plan with concrete and achievable steps to answer that question, even if you're not answering it yourself. So this is kind of like being a research entrepreneur. You get to work in lots of different domains depending on what company hires you. Number 42, you could be an artist. You could be an artist in lots of things. Painting, photography, space fashion, space music. Did you say space fashion? Space fashion. So one example I'm thinking of is the group Startorialist. Granted, these are professional astronomers who do this, but it's astronomy-related fashion. They design it, and you can buy it. <laughs> when you say space music, do you mean like wholesome? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that one open-ended. <laughs> Melina, you have to compose the planets with all 5,000 exoplanets. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Number 43, media consultant or writer. So a couple examples. Amy Mainzer for the movie Don't Look Up on Netflix is also the PI for the Neowise mission to study minor planets. Or Kip Thorne, who was the scientific consultant for the movie Interstellar. Kip Thorne famously won the Nobel Prize for the first gravitational wave detection, which he shared with two other people. Another example is the large number of academics who currently write for Futurama. Number 44, resident astronomer. So this allows you to do things like <laughs> science cruises and eclipse trips. There are a couple famous astronomers who do this. Jay Pasikoff is one example. Alex Filipenko, my first astronomy professor. <laughs> Alex Filipenko, 
Another great <laughs> example. Note, this probably requires a fair bit of name recognition in astronomy before you're able to transition into these <laughs> roles, before you're recognized by the public and trusted as the expert to go on these uh, eclipse trips. Probably depends on how nice the cruise is. <laughs> whether you take it or whether they invite you. <laughs> <laughs> well, whether you have to be super famous. That's fair. <laughs> Number 45, author or lecturer. Isaac Asimov is one example, wrote the Foundation series in iRobot, had a PhD in chemistry, not physics or astronomy, but somewhat related. There are lots of people with undergraduate or graduate degrees in a basic science field that then go on writing things like sci-fi or something completely unrelated to science. These don't have to be astronomy things you're writing. If you realize you're a good writer and you really appreciate all of science, you could start writing books in various different science fields, partnering up with people, going on expeditions. It's a hard career to go right out of the gate, but the people who love it and work hard at it can make a living as an author. Yeah, another example is Ted mm -hmm. Chang, who wrote short stories, uh, yeah. Story of Your Life, which was made into the movie Arrival. I'm pretty sure he has a PhD in computer science and just writes for fun. I've read both of his books, and they are phenomenal. Completely agree. Also, a lot of astronomers who are professors also write books, so that's something that you could consider as well. Emily Levesque, mm -hmm. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, there are lots of great astronomers who are also writing books, so if you like writing. Katie Mack is another good example. Katie Mack, yeah. Number 46, you can become a planetarium astronomer. This allows you to create planetarium shows that are both beautiful and scientifically accurate for both individual observatories and for commercial distribution. We didn't do this already? A different role. So this is kind of the astronomer that knows the science behind shows that go into planetaria as opposed to the person who's doing the programming work for the planetarium mm -hmm. itself. Yeah. Ah. They are related though, of course. Okay. Number 47, you could become an archaeoastronomer. This term essentially is a portmanteau of archaeologist and astronomer, more or less. This is a nascent field, but if you're interested in it, you should check out the International Society for Archaeoastronomy and Astronomy and Culture, or ISAAC, if you want to learn more. They have a website, <laughs> and they have a conference coming up just later this year. Could you just give a very brief background of what archaeoastronomy is? Sure. Archaeoastronomy is studying the history of astronomy, especially artifacts. Mm -hmm. So, for example, it could be the role of an archaeoastronomer to investigate the potential astronomical significance of Stonehenge. Oh. Or other artifacts that are discovered that span thousands upon thousands of years. Awesome. Number 48, you can become an animator like for Disney or Pixar. This might be surprising. Mm. But it turns out that knowing how to develop and validate codes for ray tracing, so learning about how light is going to bounce off and travel through different materials, this is critical for developing realistic animations. And it turns out lots of physicists work in this area for different Disney and Pixar movies. Cool. When I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to grad school, I strongly considered becoming an Imagineer for Disney. Fun fact. Wow. That's, That's awesome. Yep. Could you imagine? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> number 49 we're so close number 49 you can become a video game developer or designer this is kind of similar use your more creative chops and do something that people end up paying for 50, number 50 50 number 50 you can do astro tourism so this is something that's growing in popularity especially at dark sky sites that are accredited by unesco some examples are 
places in Namibia, Chile, and South Africa. You can get trained in identifying constellations and then leading tourists on different stargazing excursions. I've done one of these in Chile and I highly recommend them. They're very fun. Cool. Awesome. And that's 50. <laughs> so we even have a little bit of time to spare. All right. So we've heard about a lot of different career paths that you can take with an astronomy or physics degree. Undergrad or grad, I would say a lot of these careers really apply to either. But to place us at a very specific point in time, and since we haven't all reached the end of our graduate degrees ourselves, in place of our one-sentence summaries, if you had to go back to, say, your third year of undergrad and give yourself one major career-related piece of advice, then what would it be? Maybe we'll start off with Alex. Your statistics knowledge will find a beautiful home in astronomy, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. How about you, Will? Start preparing now for a variety of possible careers, because you never know what you're going to be excited about later on. Uh, Melina, what do you think? I would say just, and this is kind of related to my career path this, or my job circuit this year, just like to not be so fatalistic about everything <laughs> and that like everything's going to be okay. Like stressing out about it isn't going to make it any better. And really like everything's going to work out and it's going to be fine. And sometimes not knowing where you're going is actually a fun opportunity. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes if you don't know what's happening, that actually just means you don't know how many amazing options are out there. That's beautiful. Once I feel that, I'll let you know. I haven't felt that yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, this job cycle has been quite a roller coaster. And that was something where, you know, before I had any offers, one of my mentors was saying, you know, you need to stop freaking out so much. <laughs> like, it, it's going to be fine. And you're going to be fine. And like, just because you don't know what's happening doesn't mean it's going to be terrible. Which, you know, kind of hard to internalize sometimes, especially in the moment. But right. It's easier to direct it at somebody else than to yourself sometimes. Mm. But if you knew exactly where your life was going from start to finish, then where would the excitement be, you know? Well, that's true. Mm, comfort with uncertainty. Yeah. No, no, that's great. That's, that's well said, Alex. So in the making of this episode, did you discover any new career paths that you thought were kind of extra exciting that you just weren't aware of before? You can be David Attenborough? That's an option? <laughs> Who's hiring? <laughs> uh, you can do whatever you want, you know? <laughs> I gotta go make some calls. <laughs> Let's see. I think one of the more interesting ones that I'm genuinely interested in pursuing is the aerospace industry and startups in mm. particular. I, I'm intrigued by the idea of being an entrepreneur. I think entrepreneurship and research are so much more close intellectually than people realize because we're mm. running our own research. We come up with ideas, apply to get funding, and then run them. I mean, that is what entrepreneurs are doing. There might be a really good fit there. And I haven't really thought of myself in that light. So I want to explore it some mm. more. Mm. I feel like just learning and talking about what it would look like to be a consultant that fascinates me. I don't know much about the position. Maybe I would be terrible at it. But the thought of bouncing between fields and just thinking really hard about one problem and then moving on and thinking really hard about the next one, that's something you do in grad school all the time. And yeah. it's something that when applied to industry or lots of different industries, I think could be 
fascinating, but I feel like I, again, I don't know much about what exactly that would entail day to day. It's so broad. That's the wild thing. I mean, the, the large consulting firms are like management consultants. So they're trying to help businesses and firms run better, but you can be like a science consultant. You can work for a smaller consulting firm that helps, you know, with science. Well, if any of the listeners know of any consultant consultants that can advise on what exactly a consultant <laughs> does, then feel free to send me an email. <laughs> Do you need a consultant? Consult our consultant. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Melina? I feel like this episode just was a nice reminder of how much I love work. <laughs> <laughs> like everything. Because the episode was a lot well, of work. Well, <laughs> I mean, everything in here, it's like, wow, I could do that. And I could do this. What if I did all of it? What if I did all Same of it Same time. Once? My yeah. advisor is a professor and he also does consulting and he also works with a few different companies and, you know, maybe I could do it all. <laughs> Good thing I love work. <laughs> so we'll see. Hope you just yes. don't sleep. <laughs> the trick is to tape your hands to the keyboard and then hopefully something will come out before you wake up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, actually, I feel like I've always struggled with figuring out, like, what is my dream job? Because I just like doing things i like figuring things out and that can look like so many different types of careers so i think i'd be happy anywhere oh absolutely it might not be a job but it might not be a job what do you mean <laughs> your dream job might not be a job it might be an idea that you apply in many different jobs yeah all right that's a wrap for episode 50 50 careers and 50 minutes Find all of our 50 episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Woo. and Audible. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Wait, before we finish, I forgot to mention, I just wanted to